You are listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, where it's all about responding with confidence to the legal, financial, and personal challenges created by disability, unexpected illness, or simply aging in general. Join us weekly as elder law attorneys Tim Takis, Barbara McGinnis, Chris Johnson, and other members of the Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law Team talk about the tools, techniques, strategies, and services that will make the elder care journey easier for everyone involved. Get ready, because aging starts now. everyone. Welcome to episode number 85 of Aging Starts Now. I'm Barbara McGinnis, Certified Elder Law Attorney and Partner at Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law. Joining me is Todd Scholler, an attorney and partner at Smith, Scholler & Milliken, a local title company. Todd has been serving as an attorney and advisor for the realtor community for the past 20 years. Today, we're talking about tips for working with a title company. Hi, Todd. Hi, Barbara. How are you doing? I am well. Thank you for being here. So, do you have any great tips for selling a house that's owned in a trust? Um, yeah, uh, I've got a few things that we might uh, make your listeners aware of. Um, you know, of course, we don't. We're not usually involved in the establishment of the trust. That's more in in your um, your court. Um, but, you know, kind of understanding how the trust works is super important. Uh, you know, I think some people, you know, they sign up for a, a trust, you know, to be established and it's, you know, some out of state trust company and they pay a lot of money and they get a nice three ring binder and, and then they've got their living revocable trust, but then they don't actually go out and put the property in the trust. Oh yeah, I've seen that. So you wouldn't, you'd be shocked at the number of times I get to tell somebody, well, it's fantastic that there's a trust, but it's owned by you individually because you never actually put it over into the trust. So um, the other thing is, you know, who has authority to sign? You, typically on these living revocable trusts, um, you know, the it's, it's a husband and wife. Um, and in some cases, you know, one does actually have authority to convey, but in a lot of cases, it's both. And, you know, we've had, we've been asked, well, can, can I just have, can I give power of attorney to um, the other trustee and let them sign? And, and that is possible to do if your trust allows for that. And so again, kind of understanding, you know, what's within the terms of the trust, because they're not all created equal. Um, and you know that better than I, um, uh, when it comes to the actual closing, uh, and getting prepared for that, you know, we're going to, we're going to request a few things. One is, is some type of, uh, abstract of the trust. If it's not recorded, um, I believe you guys sometimes actually, if I'm not mistaken, might record those, or at least I think I've seen that, um, we do that that's our practice you're right so and that's that's helpful because we know you know who we're looking for who the trustees are what their you know their authority is and so forth so that's pretty helpful um you know if we have the abstract then obviously we don't need to see the whole trust agreement part of the reason people i think do the trust or you know for privacy concerns and that sort of thing so 
uh, you shouldn't necessarily have to cough up a, a copy of the trust itself. Um, the um, we also try to get a trust what, what we call a trust certification at closing. Uh, a trust cert is basically signed by one of the trustees, and it just sort of sets out some statutory things like, you know, um, who the trustees are, uh, that it's still in effect, that it hasn't been uh, altered or modified in a way that would prevent uh, the property from being conveyed. And so this trust cert is something that most people will want, you know, at, at or near closing so that we know the trust is still in place and, and who the trustees are. Um, so, sorry to interrupt. So you no, actually absolutely. like saying this, in addition to the abstract, which, like I said, we, we tend to record with the deed, mm-hmm. that you want a certification as well. So that's, that's a way that we could help our clients is go ahead and let them know that they're going to need a certification yes. too. Okay. Yeah. And that's certainly something that... Um, you know, we prepare those. Um, obviously, you guys probably prepare those as well, but it shouldn't be that, you know, that involved to get. It's just a fairly straightforward statement. Sure. Um, the, uh, I guess another thing you might, your listeners might want to understand is, you know, what happens to the proceeds, um, you know, typically with a revocable trust, a living trust, uh, you know, of course, there's not typically a uh, tax ID number associated with that. It's the, um, so the individual's social security number. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that's how it would be reported. And as far as, you know, who to make the check to, or how do we, what we do with the proceeds, it's typically going to go to the, the uh, settlers um, individual account. Um, compared to like an irrevocable trust um, that would have a separate tax ID number that you would need to have at closing. Um, and, and again, typically they would have a, a separate bank account set up for that trust. But what if the, what if the settlers or the grantors had already passed away and these are remainder beneficiaries selling a house out of the revocable trust? Yeah. So at that point um, it's, it's become irrevocable. And so, um, you know, we would encourage the um, beneficiaries or the, well, the substitute or successor trustees to establish a bank account, request a tax ID, and we would disperse to that, uh, to that trust directly. So. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So that, that's pretty easy. But even though the revocable trust does become irrevocable at the death of both grantors, a revocable trust, and people kind of forget this, mm-hmm. it, it offers really no creditor protection. So if sometimes there could be a house sold out of a revocable trust after the death of the grantors, and you're still holding money in escrow because of, uh, because of you know, some sort of de facto creditor period, right? That's correct. Yeah. We still have to have to get past some hurdles on the potential creditors claims and so forth. And, you know, most title underwriters, there are a couple of important dates that you pass. Um, You know, uh, there's this 60 day window that you'll hear people talk about after somebody passes away that you have to get beyond in order to ensure a transaction. But 
um, you know, the, one of the things we were going to talk about was escrow and proceeds and how that works. Um, you know, there's a statute that gives us some cover if it's an arm's length transaction, you know, for fair market value and it's conveyed to a, a you know, a bona fide purchaser um, and you don't have actual knowledge of some sort of creditor's claim. What we typically do is, you know, we can close the transaction, but we're going to escrow those proceeds uh, for six months from date of death. Uh, of the last grantor. So um, that is something that, that a lot of underwriters will require. So if you just sit on the property for six months after the death, I mean, not that I'm trying to encourage anybody to avoid creditors. I'm just saying to ensure funds can be distributed after closing. That's right. You would just wait the six months after yeah. death. Yeah. And that's um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's a non-issue, but there are some situations where people are in a hurry to, you know, settle settle out in the state. And, and so, yeah, being prepared that you, you're you not going to walk away with a check, you know, the closing day is, is something that's um, that people need to understand. So I think folks are OK with that as long as they know what to expect. And, and probably it's up to us and other estate planning attorneys to make sure people do understand that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen some folks with some hurt feelings over that. Well, and you know, one thing that I've seen as well, you know, not every underwriter has the same rules. Okay. Um, and so this is one area where realtors, you know, if, if you're, uh, let's say it's a, uh, well, it's an intestate estate, um, and you need to sell the property. Um, you know, I always frankly recommend realtors um, because I think by and large they do um, a lot of things that I don't do in, in my practice in terms of uh, some assistance and, and so forth. Um, but when they're drafting contracts, this is one area where I, I encourage them to more or less control where the closing's going to occur. Um, you know, I've seen it plenty of times where um, a realtor will call me and say, look, you know, how long are you going to have to escrow proceeds? And our answer is six months. Well, mm -hmm. then they accept a contract and the buyer's getting their own title insurance and they go to a different title underwriter and their rule is one year. Um, so, you know, for example, Stewart title requires a year uh, first American that we also write through is six months. And so, you know, knowing, knowing that ahead of time, I always encourage realtors, look, you really do need to control. This is one time you really do need to control, uh, where this thing's going to close and who's going to be issuing the policy because it has real ramifications on how quickly you might get your proceeds. Sounds, um, yeah, sounds like that's some, Wiggle room. It's going to yeah. be held in escrow for six to 12 months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's uh, it's funny because I always tell people, we, you know how you, if you go to mom and ask something and she says no, sometimes you go to dad. Right. Um, same here. We keep, we keep two underwriters because, you know, candidly, sometimes one of them uh, will view a situation differently and that benefits our clients to go ahead and be able to close their transaction. And, um, so, yeah, it pays to know, you know, your underwriter's rules on these sorts of things. So another area that that has uh, 
been problematic periodically is selling a property using power of attorney authority. Yeah. Doesn't sound like it should be problematic, but yeah. what do you need? What what do do you well, need as a title company if we're doing that? Yeah, and it obviously uh, we love it when a lawyer's involved um, in drafting <laughs> the power of attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of this is, seems to be an area where a lot of people, you know, tend to help themselves and go online and um, you know pull off what we call the internet special, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have any of the proper appointments and verbiage. Um, a lot of times it's, you know, the acknowledgements are dif- different or defective and, and they save themselves a little bit of money, but then it winds up, you know, really not helping, helping them at all and right. could wind up in a real problem uh, depending upon the situation. But, but yeah, we look at um, when somebody wants to sell and have and sign by power of attorney, the one question that I always like to ask is why do we need it? Um, you know, is it, is, is it for mom and she's in assisted living or is just somebody out of town? Um, you know, that can, that can play a role in, in looking at these things. Um, you know, who is the power of attorney? Um, you know, particularly in the situation where the power of attorney is maybe not the greatest, you know, the verbiage is close, but not, really strong, we'll kind of consider, you know, who is this attorney in fact and figure out, look, if if it's a power of attorney for mom and mom had one child and the child is in fact the, you know, the attorney in fact, I mean, who could fuss? And so in some cases we're able to um, accept an otherwise not great power of attorney simply by looking at it from a real risk from standpoint. The, yeah, all the facts and uh, yeah. the total the total situation see yeah. if it makes sense well and that's you know I think sometimes people think they're hard and fast answers a lot of times when I'm calling an underwriter it's it's how how warm and fuzzy can we get you know regarding the factual situation around this thing um, you know because not everything's black and white um, you know one thing too uh, Barbara I see is you know, understand um, when the thing is effective. When is when is the power of attorney effective? Um, can't tell you how many times people come in with um, springing powers of attorney and didn't even realize that that was the case. Right. Never got their doctor's statements. Yes. Yes. And, and I'm sure that you guys probably prepare um, well any number of, of variety of powers of attorney. Um, but yes, you know, understanding the fact that it's not really effective until somebody does something, until we get a doctor's statement. And and then, you know, one thing that you guys do is really spell out what we need and who has the authority to write the letters um, and all of that, which would effectively make that power of attorney sort of spring into effect. Um, I've also seen some with, um, you know, effective dates. When When is it an expiration date? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, which, you know, we see that more with specific uh, powers of attorney. Like uh, what you guys probably do a lot of is, you know, general durable sure. power of attorneys forms. Um, most most real estate people like to see specific um, power of attorney forms for a particular transaction. You know, if you're selling 152 Jones Street and it'll specifically reference that. 
Um, when we can, we like to get a specific power of attorney. Um, that's not always possible. As you know, sometimes, um, you know, the person is, is not capable of signing uh, right. due to a decline in health or what have you. So, um, but yes, no, again, understanding the power of attorney, um, knowing who is in fact the attorney, you know, who, who can sign for this thing. The other thing is we'd like to get the original um, at closing or have it recorded prior to. Um, there's, you know, we can't record a copy of a power of attorney. There are ways to get them of record with an affidavit and that sort of thing. But we like to have the actual power of attorney recorded with the deed if it's being executed by the attorney, in fact. So knowing where that original is um, comes in handy as well. I really encourage folks to record their powers of attorney. Um, Agreed. Just from the get-go. Uh, yeah. Because documents get lost over time. Yes, and but I do get a lot of pushback um, from clients and staff over that, to be honest, well, that it's it's expensive. And I'm like, well, it might be expensive up front, but it sure might save a lot of headache in the in the back end. Well, um, let me tell you, we had a situation where there was a fire and um, some documents were were basically destroyed. And, um, you know, it, it caused some some real heartburn for us. Um, you never know. Oh, no that. pun intended, huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, pardon the, the bad reference, but it was, you know, it was stressful. It was a tragic situation. And, and I agree with you 100 percent. Once it's recorded, um, it's there. And if you ever need to sell property in a different county or something, you can always get a certified copy, which would be recordable as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a great idea. And, and you know, I'm they can always, if something changes, they can go in and and uh, record a, a revocation or what have you. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I like your idea. I think that's smart. You know, just in general, I think, though it, I don't have any legal reference to this, this is sort mm -hmm. of just an opinion, I think it makes third parties feel better when they see that it's recorded. And obviously, you need it for the, the particular transaction that yeah. you're involved. But I think it even makes financial institutions feel better seeing that it's a recorded version so that uh, it's easy for them to tell, do I have the most current version? Well, this is recorded, so I could always go to the, the record, the register of deeds and see, is there been anything recorded subsequent to this that yeah. would revoke or change? Yep. Um, I think it's a good idea. I'll continue to encourage it. And we'll see what happens. Do you have any other final tips for making selling a house easier for folks? Um, you know, uh, well, I already mentioned get a realtor. And, and mm -hmm. I do recommend that because I think a lot of people, particularly in this market, think they can sell their own property. And it's really not as easy as, you know, people might think. I mean, there's an awful lot to it. There's a lot of standard form contracts that have to be dealt with. And, you know, I've seen some people, frankly, underprice their properties. And um, so, yeah, I think step number one would be to, to get a really good realtor, somebody that's experienced and understands what they're doing. Um, but, you know, as far as just actual closing, I mean, one thing that that's helpful is to know what to bring to closing. 
um, you know, identification. You'd be surprised at the number of people that drive around without their driver's license. Um, I was kind of shocked. Um, but, you know, bring your identification. You're probably going to want the, the proceeds wire transferred. And, you know, bring that information with you and how you acquire that information is so, so important. Um, you know, go to your bank and walk in the door and have them give you the instructions so that we can wire transfer your money. Um, you know, never accept anything over email. Uh, we, unless it's sent, you know, secured, uh, password protected, secured through some, some portal. We have a portal that we deliver um, different information through. And I know that, I mean, for you guys, I don't know how much this impacts you every day, but for us, it's huge is, you know, the wire fraud that's out there is it's truly rampant in the real estate industry. Uh, I forgot how many billions of dollars was lost, you know, pursuant to fraudulent uh, wiring instructions and, and that sort of thing. So um, very important to, uh, obtain the information firsthand from a known source. Don't ever accept any changes to wiring instructions or anything like that, um, unless you're 100% sure it's it's good information. Um, I can't tell you how many times, I mean, I've had probably two or three deals that fell apart because the buyer's money, instead of coming to us, you know, went to a different place. And, oh my you know, goodness. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very scary. So, um, wiring money is very safe as long as you can um, ensure that you're getting firsthand accurate information. Um, you know, apart from that, um, you know, uh, just ask lots of questions, you know, rely on your, um, your estate lawyers and um, those that help you, you know, draft all your documents, understand the documents and, you know, when in doubt, um, you know, contact Barbara. And if there's some question, uh, she's done it before she can contact us. That's and, right. And it kind of have to work as a team. I don't do what Barbara does. And, and she's probably very thankful. She doesn't do what I do. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so anyway, but yeah, just rely on your professionals. So, well, thank you. Hey everybody. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Takus McGinnis is a life care planning law firm helping families respond to the legal and financial challenges caused by chronic illness or disability of an elderly loved one. Join us next week for another episode of Aging Starts Now. Thank you for listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast. For more information about today's show, visit tn-elderlaw.com, click on the free resources tab, and then click on Aging Starts Now. You'll find the show notes there. And while you're at it, why not check out all the free resources available at tn-elderlaw.com. Document downloads, the Take Us McGinnis blog, educational videos, informative articles, helpful links, a TV show, and more. It's all there free for the taking. If you enjoy listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave us a review. It's easy to do on whatever app you use to listen. We would love your feedback on the show. Aging Starts Now. We'll be back next week with more candid discussions about challenges created by aging, disability, and unexpected illness.